let's begin with a grizzly story. It's actually more of a love story, though. It's the mid-1930s, and we're at the Washington State Zoo. To the surprise of zookeepers, a female Kodiak grizzly bear named Ramona and a male polar bear named Snowy have developed, let's call it, a close bond. So close, in fact, that the two had two litters of baby cubs together, a feat previously unheard of by local scientists. A polar bear and grizzly having babies. The successful hybridization of two distinct bear species quickly drew the interest of scientists and newspaper headlines. A biological rarity on par with the Dion quintuplets. The love story rolled out like a cheesy soap opera. Snowy, the male polar bear, even had another mate, Marion, who was discontent with the affair. Love triangle is formed. Snowy's other wife, a polar bear named Marion, is not impressed. A year later, with much fanfare, a contest was held to draw names for Snowy and Ramona's newest cubs, Pokodiak, Taku, and Fridgy. All three had yellowish fur and shared traits of both a polar bear and grizzly. And from then on, they were given the affectionate designation of Pisley Bears. Beyond the drama, what do these three cubs mean in the realm of science? Or is this headline barely worth remembering? You're listening to Nice Genes, an exploratory look into the world of genomics sponsored by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, here to get into the bare necessities of genomics with you. In today's episode, we're going to root around in the mysterious case of pisley bears, a rare crossbreeding of polar bears and grizzlies. But when we look at the phenomenon through our 21st century lens, this tale of two bears raises an interesting conversation, one about what society and science value and how those values impact the wildlife and wild communities around us. Hi, hi, hi. Hello. 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 Beep boop. (laughs) To get us started, I've called in National Geographic explorer and conservation biologist from UC Berkeley, Dr. Christine Wilkinson, to host today's episode with me. Hey, Kaylee. Oh, hey. Excited? Yep. I want to dive into talking about pizzlies. Who doesn't? And because our Pisleys open us up to talking about conservation and climate change, I thought you would have an interesting perspective to explore these concepts with me. So to start us off, can you tell us a bit about what you do? I look at how humans and wildlife interact, and I mainly focus on large carnivores and on mesocarnivores, which are essentially medium-sized carnivores, when I'm looking at how people can interact with wildlife and also how we can coexist with them. So I've worked with a lot of misunderstood animals like gulls, herring gulls, which everyone calls them trash birds. And with olive baboons. But recently, I've done a lot of work with spotted hyenas and figuring out how they're navigating really highly developed landscapes, human-dominated landscapes in Kenya. And I also work with animals like coyotes here in the Bay Area and in Los Angeles, California. So with your experience from studying animals in Africa to the western United States... Are you up for a little excursion up north towards the Arctic and my home of British Columbia? 
Of course I am. And to get a sense of the area, I wanted to first get a pair of eyes on the ground. So let's, let's go out there. To kick things off, I reached out to two experts on the ground. First, Galen Krauss, captain of the Island Odyssey, a ship that takes people on tours off of British Columbia's north coast, as well as naturalist and hiking guide Ellie Lamb. They're going to help paint the picture of the daily lives of fishers. My name is Galen. I'm a captain with Blue Water Adventures on the Island Odyssey. Uh, we're on the central coast. We're going grizzly bear viewing. We've just finished dinner. Salmon dinner, curiously enough. We've got about an hour of daylight left. There's a fog layer just 20 feet over the water, drifting in. First bit of blue sky of the day. River estuary watching grizzly bears. Just seen uh, a fairly healthy sub adult walk, come out of some crab apple trees, walk along the riverbank and into a log jam where he's now fished out a spawned out salmon and has just walked away to, to eat him in a little bit of privacy. We've got towering cliffs on either side with lots and lots of waterfalls all around and we're going to move into position for a slightly better view. Now, over on dry land, Ellie Lamb. Okay, we're going to just keep our voices low as we move through this area. It's an exciting time of year. So, oh, here, this is a, a rub tree and, um, where bears basically they're not a real territorial animal but they're they're just saying when they rub on this tree you can see hair all over the sides of this tree caught in the bark and and the sap they're basically just saying hey you know what this is my home but a like social media of the forest so let's move on let's see what we see when we get closer to the river I just saw a little bit of a trembling bush over there. And there may be a bear in the distance. Oh yeah. Okay, so that that bear is a female that I've known since she was a cub. She's very, very polite girl. And she's got two little wee cubs of the year. And uh, I've always called her perfect. People think that bears are just kind of primal animal. They do, they have that side to them, but they're definitely a very uh, civilized uh, uh, community of animals. There, she's just going to grab a fish. Oh yeah, she's, she, the cub's trying to take it from her. It's pretty amazing to see this. It's just a true gift. Yeah, she's going to be in there for a little while, so we'll let her carry on a little carry on our walk and see what we see around this corner. From what Ellie and Galen shared with us, we can begin peeling back the veil between us and this fascinating ecosystem. And as Ellie mentioned, bears have a really interesting social and communal life. Perhaps we can begin piecing together our pizzly puzzle and what genomics has to do with it. Off the top, we introduced a bit of an unexpected genetics math equation. Grizzly plus polar bear 
equals Kisley? But that was in captivity. What about in the wild? Are Pisleys roaming the countryside? Yeah. I see. <laughs> Meet Dr. David Paitko. I run a private lab called Wildlife Genetics, and we do genotyping for basically study the distribution and abundance, uh, primarily mammals, but some other things too. Including work with bears especially polar bears. We do lots of polar bear work. We've genotyped uh, something like half the polar bears. 12,000 polar bear genotypes. It's a pretty massive number, really. On a typical workday, going through bear DNA, genotyping, you know, lab stuff, David and his team were contacted for a more unusual sample collected in the field. So the NWT is the Northwest Territories government that we work with. The uh, wildlife managers in Inuvik received this account of an unusual bear that had been killed by a hunter that looked pretty unusual for a polar bear, but it was out on the sea ice where, where polar bears would be expected and, and grizzly bears wouldn't be. So they included that sample and said, what's, what's the story with this? Typically, we'll analyze about 20 different locations on the chromosomes, loci. So that's what we did. We used our population genetic tools to work up a genotype for this this individual of uh, interest and compare that to the genotypes that we have for local grizzly bear populations on the bear grounds and also to the local polar bear population. That individual's ancestry that came from those two source populations was pretty close to 50-50. Meaning it was a pizzly bear. And then NWT did a press release and then every press agency on planet Earth called and put blue lights in the lab and uh, colored solutions in tubes and, and do some fake documentaries on the Pizzly bears. The discovery of Pizzlies in the wild hit the headlines, just like the story of Pizzlies back in the 1930s. But with a 21st century twist like this one. Uh, grizzly bears, in addition to, to expanding their range to the north, are expanding their range to the east towards Hudson Bay across the Barren Grounds. And so there's a hunter in Arviat on the, on the west coast of Hudson Bay who, who killed an unusual bear. And what a lot of folks don't know is that the bears up there on the Barren Grounds are often quite light-colored, you know, they're called blonde grizzly bears. And so looked at this blonde-colored bear and decided that might be a, a hybrid. But in the meantime, you have news organizations like The Guardian that, you know, run a story, oh, harbinger of climate change. And that story still stands, you know, it's still on the, if you search The Guardian for hybrid bears, that story will come up in your research and, and they won't correct it. I've asked them a couple of times. It gets this kind of energy behind it where the actually, in that case, completely false information spun into a climate change story. And then all the solid stuff that we actually do day in and day out uh, has no legs at all in terms of press stories. Classic. I know, right? <laughs> so what is the truth behind our hybrid story? You know, so the climate's changing quite rapidly in the north. So there are a lot of sightings of grizzly bears quite far north of the continent, where, where you wouldn't have expected them historically, as much as 800 kilometers. It's anticipated, it seems quite likely, that polar bears will lose the, the southern end of their range. It hasn't really yet. So the, the increase in, in overlap is, is due to grizzly bears moving north from the continent into the Arctic uh, archipelago. When we analyzed the first hybrid bear, we searched all our polar bears and all our grizzly bears from that part of the world uh, to see if we had the parents. 
Turns out they did. And oddly, for the first Pisley sample they got, and even subsequent other Pisleys after that, the data kept pointing them to the same mother bear, a polar bear known in David's lab as number 10960. Yeah, no, that's her. Yeah, 10960, that's the female that made it with the grizzly bears. And and she really is the entire story in a way. Like it, it, it's, it's really sort of a story about the unusual mate choices of one polar bear. And so uh, she had four offspring that were 50% polar bear, 50% grizzly bear. And they went on to have at least four offspring. And uh, most of those individuals have, uh, we know they've died. Uh, how did they die? Well... Well, most of them are known to have been killed by hunters, yeah. Being neither polar bears nor grizzly bears, there's no real rules around... Uh, managing the hunting. That's probably the end of the story. There's, there's, there's probably not going to be a much follow-up on what happened to those eight or 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 more individuals of fifty percent or one quarter polar bear ancestry. Wow, I already have some thoughts. Yeah, so you can stop me if I shouldn't have these thoughts right now. No, you should have thoughts. <laughs> Okay, so I just, I don't know why it just occurred to me right now, but I'm on a paper that we're working on right now about conspicuous color morph animals, um, which is what this is. <laughs> and um, we're talking a lot about how we choose to value the morphs that are unusual in animals and what that can mean. Usually it means something more on like a local level, right? Like there's some cities that um, protect their melanistic squirrels or their albino this or that. Uh, and like, there's even like little ordin ordinances about how those animals are protected and like squirrel festivals <laughs> or whatever, you know, things that yeah. kind of come about because we get so excited about these, these charismatic color morphs or these conspicuous color morphs that we decide are charismatic. And so I think that really factors in here where pizzly bears are a conspicuous color morph that we don't see very often might not necessarily mean anything about them being more fit or anything like that for their environment. But be just because of their color, we have these huge, uh, you know, news stories about them and wonder what to do about them. Um, so it's just something to think about when we're talking about value judgments and conservation. Yeah, totally. And it gets at this, like, the value and why, right? I think one of the really interesting things that Dr. Paco talked about was like, well, now these animals because they, maybe they were interesting or they were targeted, were, were hunted. How might this have translated into management or protections if we, if we value these organisms enough to try to keep them? Right, and like how many less conspicuous hybrid, quote-unquote hybrid species have existed on this planet and we had had no idea about it because they came and went. But there's something especially sad about losing this interesting hybrid. Like, when is the next time we're really going to get to know more about the significance of Pisleys, <laughs> if any? Yeah, it's more it, it, it's more sort of, yeah, get out of coffee and, and ponder what does this all mean. And that's where our story takes us next. Hi, so can you start us off by stating your name and what you do? My name is Jennifer Walkus. I'm from the Uikinuk Nation. I'm our research coordinator as well. It's been nice to see a lot of changes come, especially as a lot of the Western science research backs up 
what First Nations have been saying through traditional ecological knowledge. Jennifer Wakas is an Awikinuk scientist. Her people's traditional territory sits right within British Columbia's famous Great Bear Rainforest, the coastal area Captain Krauss was showing us earlier. She studies bears a lot, as they're quite often living right in and around her community. So maybe can you tell me a bit about the historical relationship between bears and your community? Yeah. What one of the things that my aunt had always told me is that we learned a lot of what we do from the bears. We learned what to eat. We have a lot of the same needs. We both need similar amounts of space. When we came to this territory, we developed together and we found out what we could and couldn't do by observing a lot of what the bears were doing. They're considered a lot more closely connected, I guess, to our people. We see that we have to coexist with them. They have just as much right to be here as we do. What we all started to do is we all started to do our own bear DNA research. So when we started to look at the roll-up of all of our research, they, they started looking at the interrelatedness of bears, how related different populations of bears were to one another. And when they started to look at it, they couldn't figure out why this research was showing the bears are so closely related in these regions. Because usually with bears, you start to think that the bears are related because of a large mountain range, a large body of water, something that keeps them from traveling across. But that wasn't the case because they were crossing mountain ranges. They were crossing water bodies. But there wasn't a clear understanding of what was keeping them from going to other areas until they started to look at language groups. Because they work with the nation so closely, they started to have a greater understanding of how the languages work. Because Wiknuk and Heltzuk are both in one language group. Belakula, the Nuhalk, is in another language group. And Kitasu is in another language group. And so when they started to look at how interrelated they are, those language groups overlapped really heavily with where the bears were interrelated. Okay, so we can begin seeing how bears are tied to the communities of people living there too, which takes us to another part of Jennifer's story. For ages, bears have been hunted as trophies in British Columbia. So acknowledging the connection the various nations had with these bears Jennifer's community and surrounding communities sought to end it. I'd really love to, to talk to you about is some other work that you've been involved in. And I actually wasn't aware until learning more about your work that there used to be a trophy hunt of bears in British Columbia. Oh, trophy hunting was around for a really long time. And so the Great Bear Initiative Nations, GBI, we all have been working on trying to close the trophy hunt in the Great Bear Rainforest for, gosh, as long as GBI has been around. And we really weren't getting any traction. Our nations have a real problem with it culturally. We don't have a problem with hunting for food. We hunt for food ourselves. And our biggest problem with the trophy hunt is that the animals are killed. Their heads taken, their paws taken, their skins taken. 
and the grizzlies are just left in the field to rot. And it's really hard to see because when a bear is killed and skinned, it looks very much like a squat human being. He's got a really long body and really short legs. This hunt that really goes against our cultural values was one of the things that we wanted to try and tackle. So Jennifer and the other nations decided to look into why the trophy hunt was being continued. The government claimed to manage the hunt based on the best available conservation science, but... They only count the hunt. They don't count different kinds of mortalities, highways, trains, all of these things that end up killing bears as well, and those aren't figured in in their plans. The other argument the government made was that trophy hunting brought in a lot of money for the economy. When we compared how much money the trophy hunt brought in and how much money ecotourism brought in, it was something like 11 times more money. The trophy hunt had a tendency to cost more to run than it brought in in revenue for the government because the only thing it brought in was just the fees and the fees aren't all that high. They put a film together to share their views and research on trophy hunting with the wider British Columbian public. We put together a film called Bears Forever and we took that film on tour and it talked about why and how bear trophy hunt isn't socially acceptable in our communities. And we put out signage that asked people to respect our traditional laws. And eventually... The B.C. government making a big wildlife announcement today, ending the grizzly bear trophy hunt in this province. The data that we produce helped other organizations to push for the closure to be B.C.-wide, not just within the Great Bear Rainforest. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what it felt like for you personally when they ended the hunt? It, it was pretty indescribable, the fact that we had actually managed to do this. Because when we started, everybody said it'll never happen. The lobby is too powerful. It was quite a sigh of relief because every year before that, we would start to get when it came time for the spring hunt and when it came time for the fall hunt, you would start to feel that heaviness that you're going to start to encounter these carcasses that look so much like us, that we know so many of the bears that live within our community. These would be bears that we know that were shot and so, or they could be. And so it was really a big change for us to not feel that way. But it, it's not a legislated closure. It's only through policies. So it's really easy to have reopened. And there's quite a powerful lobby right now who is pushing to have it reopened. There are a few things that tend to change government policy. It's going to be votes, lobbying. Science really doesn't do it unless you've got one of the other two behind it. So if we wanted to change the policy, we had to change the science. Thinking about what Jennifer said makes me think back to what, Christine, you mentioned at the beginning, 
that these issues are socio-ecological. Yeah. And when we get into the social side of things, that socio piece, we don't always share the same values or perspectives. That makes sense. That makes sense. But it's the social side that plays such a significant role in the actual decision-making. Yeah. Looking at the dilemma Jennifer had when trying to convince the government to end the trophy hunt gives me a question. What other perspectives do we need to embrace to protect animals and our planet for the future? You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host. And I'm your co-host for this episode, Dr. Christine Wilkinson. We want to get more people listening to the stories of genomics that are shaping our world. So if you like nice genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Be the bearer of positive climate science news by telling one of your wild friends about us. <laughs> oh dear. I want to return to Dr. David Paitko from Wildlife yeah, Genetics yeah. International. By using DNA and genomics, yep. he's able to tell the story of how various environmental pressures affect bears over time. So I, I think for that perspective, actually, it's the historical time frame where that becomes interesting. And one of those stories unfolds all the way back to the last ice age. Um, but there are these great historical uh, incidents, and one of them I've been working on since the 90s, which is in the ABC Islands of Southeast Alaska, Admiralty, Baranoff, and Chichikov Islands where it appears that the story is that there was a population of polar bears at the end of the Pleistocene, got left behind as, as uh, polar bear habitat retreated to the north. And then as brown bears re-entered the area, they started swimming across to those islands. And then over a period of 10,000 years, those bears on those islands, which started out as polar bears, kept getting this input from brown bears, this gene flow that just gradually swamps out their genomes to the point where now it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 92 to 96 percent brown bear genomes in those former polar bears. That gene flow between brown bears and polar bears creates an almost subspecies. They're grizzly bears with just a hint of polar bear in them. So Dr. Paitko's team can essentially pick out the DNA history of these bears no matter where they're found. Which leads us to another interesting discovery. Dr. Paitko's team found another set of unique polar bears at the southern tip of Greenland. We were there for the same reason that uh, to keep track of abundance. But in the process of doing uh, some abundance work, just some clustering software, just poking at the data at the end of the project revealed that there were really two very distinct genetic groups there. At the time, there were 19 subspecies of polar bears, populations that were distinct from one another. What they had stumbled across was potentially a 20th. So polar bears and, and brown bears got together in Ireland at probably around the same time that that the story happened in, the, in southeast Alaska and the ABC Islands. So in this case, in southern Greenland, with this, this new polar bear subpopulation, the genomics tools are able to, to look back and say, it looks like something that, where the isolation has probably existed for on the order of a couple hundred years uh, at a minimum. One thing that's really cool about this subpopulation is that their adaptation may make them better able to adapt to changing environmental conditions that southern Greenland population is is interesting because it's making their living in a place where uh, sea ice, so polar bears 
hunt from sea ice. They hunt seals, and that's that's how they make a living. And so the sea ice is only present for about four months a year. And so the, what they're depending on, in addition to sea ice, is, is the glacial ice that breaks off from these, these glaciers that are coming down into the ocean. And so they're hunting from this platform of this melange of frozen sea ice and glacial uh, ice. And that turns out to be a, a sufficient platform to be able to catch seals. And so ecologically, that's quite unique. You know, other polar bears do really hunt exclusively from sea ice. As polar bears retreat to the north, as, as we anticipate their range will contract towards the north with, with uh, climate change, there may be other circumstances where that glacial outflow compensates a little bit for the lack of sea ice. And so maybe there'll be some, some local situations where polar bears can make a living in, in places where we might not have thought previously they'd be able to. Turns out these bears, whether it's from their DNA or just a certain level of craftiness, uh, maybe they know a thing or two about conserving themselves. True, but with our climate changing so rapidly, is there always going to be a subspecies that can adapt quickly enough to survive? Let's take it back to Jennifer Wakas. She has an excellent example of what changing conditions can do to an ecosystem and what we can do about it. Previously, briefly about the the Great Salmon Collapse. And for listeners who aren't familiar with it, what happened there exactly? We used to be this huge producer of sockeye. So we never had a problem with having enough food to eat when I was a kid. And so as long as we had enough to eat, the bears had enough to eat, the wolves had enough to eat. Around the 70s, the salmon started to collapse. In order to get groceries in here, I live in a small community of about 60 people. It's 45 minutes by float plane from Port Hardy. That's where we get our groceries, or it's a three-hour boat ride, or a two-day ride for the barge. And so getting food here is expensive. So we eat a lot of traditional foods. We eat a lot of crab, we eat a lot of salmon, we eat a lot of halibut, cod, but also for all of the predators that need that food as well. And after that collapse, they ended up shooting 15 bears. They were starving. They weren't protecting their cubs. They were trying to get into houses. When we tried to call conservation, they, instead of relocating, they were just shooting the bears. So it was a really hard time here in the community. And so just the order of magnitude of the drop meant there really wasn't enough food for the bears. British Columbia was once known for its colorful postcards of flashing red sockeye salmon traveling way too far up rivers and streams throughout the province. But now they're struggling for their very survival. That's placed a lot of pressure on communities like Jennifer's, fishing industries, and animals such as bears, who are trying to gather enough food to sustain themselves. So what do you do? There's a more recent movement within the conservation science community known as One Health. The World Health Organization defines it as a unifying approach to balance and optimize the health of people, animals, and the environment. But for Jennifer, conservation is also locked into traditional indigenous ecological knowledge. And that may just hold the key to balance a precarious situation 
back from the brink. So here in the in in my field, conservation science, we think a lot in terms of a semi-recent framework called One Health, which essentially is looking at the connections between people, wildlife, and the environment. But I'm wondering for you as an indigenous scientist and an indigenous policymaker now, do you use any particular frameworks that you bring into your research, into your work? I've heard of like the two eyes seeing approach, which is we look at things very differently. And when we work together, we can fill in the gaps in our understanding. The way First Nations tend to look at things tends to be a lot more holistic. We're here all year, every year, year in, year out. Researchers come in for shorter periods of time. When management happens within Western science, Western science has a tendency to silo things. Fish people manage fish people, bear people manage bear people, government manages people, and never the three meet. But that isn't really how it works on the land. So when we have a two-eyed seeing approach, it's being able to work together to see what are the things that fall between the cracks. How do we manage salmon for bears and people? Like It used the MSY approach, maximum sustainable yield, and it overlays the bear populations and the bear projections on how much food bears need, and it overlays that over that maximum sustainable yield graph, so that way we can shift how that... MSY approach works and makes it so that helps to ensure that the fish that we expect to reach the streams reach the stream. You know, you're really talking about important questions and and many of them starting at a local scale where it's observation of community, right? Noticing changes or recognizing the importance of something. And so how do we mobilize so that we can address these local questions, but also make sure that they're answered appropriately and thoughtfully with community? The kind of support that we need in order to make sure that we continue to do the research that allows us to put traditional ecological knowledge and Western science together in that One Health, Two-Eyed Seeing perspective. So that way we can all work together and everybody benefits. One of the biggest issues that we've got right now is climate change. Who better to see what are the effects than the people who live out here 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. This way of looking at things is being recognized within the scientific community and it's been proven that when First Nations or Aboriginal people not necessarily just Canadian First Nations, but when the local communities are involved in management, it's quite often a lot more ecologically sound. It's been proven within research papers all over the world. Thank you so much for your time, Jennifer. It has been so great to learn from you today. Thank you for sharing those stories with us. Well, thank you for having me on here. I think it's really important to get the message out that Western science has backed up these issues that we've brought forward on both levels, both the First Nations and the larger community at large. All right, we're just loading up the Zodiac, going out for our second bear viewing of the evening. If, if Murray is coming, then he is still to keep going for the light fades. 
or we've just had a great view of, of a sow and our two cubs of the year, first year cubs that were born in the in the den this winter and now we're down in the estuary eating salmon for the first time. Uh, really playful and cute and uh, they all look pretty healthy, which is good to see as the salmon start to fill in here. This bear looks quite curious. Maybe it's going back to thinking about salmon now. I was born up in the mountain Raised by an old grizzly bear I was born up in the mountain Raised by an old grizzly bear I sit by Mother Nature And I breathe fresh, clean, natural air My guests for today have been Oikinuk scientist Jennifer Walkus and Dr. David Paitko from Genetic Wildlife International. Special thanks to Captain Galen Krauss and Ellie Lamb for taking our ears along exploring the Wild West Coast. And finally, thank you, of course, to my fantastic co-host, Dr. Christine Wilkinson. Oh, thank you. Well, Christine, can you finish this off for today? Of course. You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to at GenomeBC. And we also have learn-along sheets added to the show description for those who want to grab a lesson from each episode. Tune into Nice Genes next time, where we have a devilish twist on conservation from down under. Tasmanian devils actually den underneath people's houses and they scream underneath your house. And so when Europeans first arrived in Australia, to them it sounded like, you know, the devil living underneath the house. And that's literally how they got their name. It ain't my time to die, no. Don't forget to leave us a review wherever you listen. The Pisleys would prefer a cool one. Thanks for keeping your furry ears tuned in this far, and I look forward to having another roar with you later. Roar.